Hello and welcome to A City of Champions, a seven-part podcast series diving into each individual game of the Cleveland Cavaliers 2016 Finals run. For Game 6, we were joined by the ever-insightful Ethan Strauss from The Athletic to discuss LeBron's masterpiece and Seth Curry's infamous foul-out and mouth-guard talks as the Cavaliers forced a Game 7. As we get set for Game 6, starting lineups and some changes. Andrew Bogut out with the knee injury. Andre Iguodala will start in his place. Draymond Green returns. Same starting five for Cleveland. They're saying this is the biggest game in franchise history and one of the biggest nights in the city's sports history as they try to keep alive their dream of bringing a championship to the city of Cleveland. Thompson chased by LeBron James, hooked away from behind, then releases. And Curry has to back off as James throws it down. Irving fakes, drives, James on the throwdown. James, Thompson running and finishing. That's a guy that wants to see a game seven. James to Thompson. Oh, what a pass from LeBron James. 31 to nine. Or Dante Jones inside, layup is good. J.R. Smith hits a three way downtown. Pass inside, stolen by Irving. Throws it ahead to Smith. Smith, alley up to James. Wow. In the final home game of the season for the Cavaliers. It's Bedlam here in Cleveland. Curry blocked by James. And a foul on Curry. And Curry's going to get it with a technical. He throws his mouthpiece after fouling out of the game. And it hit a fan, Mike. First time he's fouled out since December 2013. James finishing touches on a magnificent performance. 41 in back-to-back finals games. And there's the buzzer. Game seven, Sunday night in Oakland. Welcome to the Chase Down Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Network, brought to you by our friends at betonline.ag. I'm your host, Justin Rowan, and today we are talking about Game 6 of the 2016 NBA Finals. With me today is my co-host, Carter Rodriguez. Carter, how you doing, buddy? We're almost to the end. We have entered uh, what I like to call the schadenfreude game, the game that uh, is the most fun for Cavs fans to watch. They're hated warriors squirm <laughs> and as such i had a lot of fun re-watching this one how about you bud it was absolutely a lot of fun i'm excited to talk to, about this one and with us today to help break it all down author of the victory machine from the athletic ethan strauss ethan how you doing buddy i'm doing great i'm excited about this i i think this is a very underrated game uh, for reasons that make sense for reasons <laughs> that make sense because i don't think there were any lead changes at all um no, Cavs one wire to wire they went wire to wire, so you didn't you didn't have that kind of uh, that kind of drama, and it makes sense that the game five, obviously, with the forty one forty one for Kyrie and LeBron, um, and then game seven coming down to the last few possessions and being a game seven that this one gets gets lost in the shuffle. But um, rewatching it again, and definitely from my memory, a very significant playoff game that doesn't it just doesn't get talked about too much other than lebron blocking steph shot and talking shit i think that's mm-hmm. the main thing that that people remember yeah this was uh you we were saying right before we started recording that this was the first time you'd rewatched any games from this series and by extension the first time you heard it with the with the play-by-play and color commentary on what was that experience like for you 
I gotta say it took something away. It was really, it, yeah, it's, uh, I, I gotta be careful because I see Mark Jackson every now and again and I say hi and there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a history there. Right. But I, you know, and I, I also, I, I just try to be a little bit careful because there's a lot of talented people at ESPN and it's not a board. You know, people talk about ESPN as though it's just one thing, but the TV production, I mean, it was so strange to watch the TV production of this versus my experience of this. My experience of this was epic. This was an epic series. The energy in the building was incredible. My most powerful memory of this game is not the game, although there were parts I remember quite well. It's just being in the concourse of Quicken Loans and they're just blasting Phil Collins in the air of the <laughs> night. And I'm just watching like oh, old black concessioners just belting out the lyrics. <laughs> oh, that's dope. Is locked the fuck in. And it <laughs> is nervy and it is huge. And then I watch this. Uh, I rewatch the game and I see the intro and I think it's, it's maybe like it's the roots. I think it's the roots and the roots are great. I mean, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to an open air concert, which we can't do right now, I mean, that's all fun and fine, but they're, they're, they're going with this motif of the number two for some reason, like two, two MVPs, Kyrie Irving, numbers, numbers two and two, two. I, I don't know if you guys saw this or we yeah. watched this at all, or if it was just me. Tonight. Two is the magic number. Two number 23s. Two wins brings the Cavaliers a title. Two straight trophies for the Warriors if they don't. And I was watching it going, what What the hell is this? This isn't like epic. This isn't setting the stage. Why is ESPN so bad at this? Why don't they provide a sense of, of gravitas in the way of NBC? If this was Bob, like imagine if Bob Costas and NBC was introing this game after what just happened in game five. I mean, I can't even, I can't even tell you how much better the stage would be set. And then you watch the game and so much of the commentary, obviously Breen does a great job is completely oblivious to, to, to the magnitude of what we're witnessing. And there are these bizarre moments where, uh, Craig Sager, obviously Craig Sager is dying at the time and it mm -hmm. was quite striking to see, see him, but he's waving to the crowd and they're cheering him. And you know, I, I had Jackson. forgotten about that. I had forgotten Completely that this was forgotten. his one game that he, he came back and, and it yeah. was his first broadcast of the finals. Yeah. And he's waving to the crowd and then Mark Jackson goes, I prefer people tell me how they feel about me when I'm alive. <laughs> like, I, I, I also laughed at that. I was like, <laughs> that, I wait, that. <laughs> not, not reading the moment at all. I, I want it to be a little bit about me right now. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then, you know, at some point, Jeff Van Gundy jumps in and makes it almost, he saves it, makes it a little pointed. And he goes, well, I'll tell you right now. I love you, man. And <laughs> Mark Jackson thanks him. And this is fourth. This is the fourth quarter, by the way, of this. this yeah. Game. <laughs> like what? Well, there was one of those moments we, we were talking about this in the Game 4 podcast with Marcus Thompson where they were all of a sudden they flashed to OJ Made in America that was set to debut and Jeff Van Gundy's talking about OJ with the gun to his head. And I'm like, oh it's the God. fourth quarter and it's kind of in the balance. And this was uh, another they, one they, of those games. Game 6 was one of those games that even though it was wire to wire and the Cavs had a pretty good handle on it, there were moments where this was still close, especially in the fourth quarter, 
where it could have gone either way. That's okay. So that's the thing that, and this is why it's taken for granted because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's called creeping determinism where we look back and whatever happened, we act as though we always knew it was going that way. I think you guys could probably speak to this. The people in that building were not exactly brimming with confidence after decades and decades of heartbreak. And every time the lead got winnowed, you could just feel it. There was a negative fatalism that was just pulsating. And maybe people would reject it as this is hokum, it's not true, that a certain chokiness infects the play. I think it does happen to a certain degree. I think teams feel it. You can feel it in the building. And I look at this game as just one of the all-time great LeBron games because every time that happened, he answered. Every Mm -hmm. time the Cavs were starting to shrink and they were not playing with flow and the Warriors were cutting the lead, he stepped it up and completely closed it out in the fourth quarter. Just just technical mastery Um, between – they would switch Barbosa onto him, did not work. He hit his mid-range jumpers. Then he took that attention and he threw the lobs. Just an insane amount of lobs in this game. And – and, and, you know, it also it, it had that aspect that the Cavs did very well in the series where they would just run it back on the Warriors. And I think Richard Jefferson's talked about that, but you really saw it in this game. And LeBron was the central figure in all of that as well. And so I look at it as almost – I look at game six as almost the lost all-time great LeBron game. I think in some ways – even better than game five where he scored 41 just based on the moment. And if we look back to that time and we think about it, if the Cavs lose this game and they choke away that 20 some odd point lead, yeah, nobody cares about that game five. Nobody cares. We care about that 41 and 41 historically because they won the series in many ways. But what you think, what would they have said, you know, next day and first take, well, Draymond didn't play like who right. cares. They yeah. choked away. However, I can't remember how big the lead got, but 20-something point lead. They were up 20 at the end of the first quarter. They won the first quarter 31-11. to Yeah. uh, Yeah. And we're up 20 for much of the game. It was down to seven with like two minutes left in the third quarter. Yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't for an Iggy step back long two with three seconds left, it would have been a single-digit quarter. And that was a a striking thing as well upon rewatch. And Ethan, to speak towards your kind of that sense of dread, I haven't I hadn't watched any of this series again since it happened because I was scared the result was going to change. A lot of the fourth quarter possessions of the Warriors in Game Seven I had never seen before because my hands were uh, my head was in my hands. So I can absolutely agree with this. Um, but it was it was striking to see just from the fourth quarter of Game Five and the first quarter of Game Six the Warriors offense had just completely abandoned them. Yeah, um, and, and that was kind of more than anything that that was the reason why this series lead fell apart was that the offense just wasn't clicking at that consistent rate and um a, a big part of what was working for the Cavs too which was counterintuitive at the time was the quicker they pushed the pace the more success they had it made it tougher for the Warriors to account for Tristan Thompson who was obviously a massive part of this game and they just kept creating extra possession after extra possession yeah, I looking back on it, the Warriors just they look heavy. They they look like they have dead legs. And I don't think that it's not an excuse because the Warriors made this choice and they damn near got away with it, but they do not look like the fresher team after pushing themselves 
themselves the 73 wins. And it's not just, you know, it wasn't just Steph and the knee issue. You also see Andre hobbling, but even beyond that, they just did not, they did not look like they were playing with a lot of verve and that made it an even smarter decision. I think to push the pace in the way that the Cavs did. And yet I do wonder if things would have gone differently if Kerr hadn't made a, Okay, so it's it's a very interesting Steph game. You know, game six is a very interesting Steph game because it's probably his best game, and also he fouls out and is just playing defense in a really weird way and almost daring the refs to do it the right. entire time. And he not yeah. only does he, does he foul out, but he, you know, he throws the mouthpiece and, you know, it's just... It's it's crazy. It's crazy at the end of it. And a foul on Curry, and Curry's going to get it with a technical. He throws his mouthpiece after fouling out of the game. And it hit a fan, Mike. First time he's fouled out since December 2013. So I still think even with the ultimate irresponsibility Steph was playing with and even with um, understanding why Kerr did what he did, I thought it was a mistake for Kerr to bench Steph in the first quarter when he got in the foul trouble, when he picked up two fouls, because the Warriors had nothing going, nothing. And Steph, if you remember or saw on the rewatch, he gets loose for a three-pointer off the catch, and it just looks pure. And it almost looks like this was the game, for whatever reason, when Steph was locked in and the shot was working and the Warriors kind of wasted it, and maybe Kerr should have... He should, if Kerr hadn't benched him at that point, maybe the Warriors keep the lead at a reasonable enough chunk to where they're not just always trying to get it down and always trying to winnow it down. So I don't know how you guys feel about it, but to me, looking back on it, that was a mistake. And I guess the secondary Kerr mistake, whenever Azili came in, I thought to myself, huh, you know, I've never rewatched this game. Maybe Kerr put Azili in in game seven and made that fatal mistake because he did so great in game five and that would have set it up uh, no he was just terrible <laughs> <laughs> no he he was he was on one leg pretty clearly getting getting killed on misreading coverages and it just he Azili was bad I do want to go back to Steph though because yeah. we did a little digging you know we're uh, a professional podcast as you might have heard <laughs> you did a podcast with Slate after game six and before game seven and you mentioned that Here's a poll quote from you here. This team is a dearth of people who finish at the rim. He's within five feet, shooting 45% of the rim in these finals for the entire playoffs, 50%. He was at 64.5 during the season. And then, speaking to the heavy legs point that you just made, you, you said this. They're almost like it, it, it's one of those scenes in a movie where people are coming back from space and they're aircraft is breaking up as they hit the atmosphere they're falling apart right now oh wow i didn't even I know post it. i like that. very verbose <laughs> yeah i really like that <laughs> no, and, I, I, and like it does feel that way uh, even knowing what happened in game seven that one the steph three like steph looked better than his stat line even indicated because he was still hitting from three but if you look at that game he did not shoot particularly well from the field and he just had a weird – it was just a weird game and a weird series for him. Yeah. You know, and certain misses at the rim, I think, uh, were quite monumental. I've got this memory of 
there's one play in the fourth quarter where he gets to the rim and it's kind of a one clutch shot that rims in and out. And I think maybe Tristan Thompson gives him a little shove on the way down, but it goes in and out. I just remember looking at Eric Malinowski who was writing a Warriors book and I, maybe this is unfair, but I bet the book does better if the Warriors win, right? Mm -hmm. If they win the championship. And I just remember his head hitting his desk at that point. You know, it's just the the, the complete frustration of it all. And then the other one is the famed LeBron block of Steph. That is not a normal thing for Steph to do, and it is LeBron trailing him, king of the chase down block. It's Bedlam here in Cleveland. It was weird that he just stopped. I think he kind of traveled and then sort of did this ineffectual pump fake. And it was just very clear that for whatever reason, he was not right at the rim. And I think we have enough distance that we can talk about these things in in a nuanced way, right? The emotions ran so high that if you talked about Steph being hurt, um, it was taken as an excuse. I think it's a confluence. Steph was hurt. But he didn't do what he needed to do to pull through despite being hurt. Right. And these are the margins um, and how history remembers things. And ultimately, you just, you just have to get it done. And he didn't get it done. And he did some irresponsible things while injured. He did, uh, it, you could say almost it, it was arrogance. You know, the aforementioned uh, just crazy fouling when he was in foul trouble was one thing. And then the other thing um, that we were behind the back pass in Game Seven, but in in a way, this much of the series could almost be encapsulated um, in that moment where LeBron blocks him and what followed. What I didn't remember was that one uh, is that the ejection seemed to be inspired by the block yeah. because LeBron blocks his shot and then he talks shit to him, and then on the next possession where the Cavs get the ball. Um, the Warriors actually got the ball back and I think Clay got fouled and hit a free throw. And then LeBron gets the inbound. Steph sprints at him. Um, or if he doesn't get the inbound, he eventually gets the ball in the backcourt. Steph sprints I, at I think him. it was a. I think it might have been a rebound. I think Clay missed one of them. It, it was a rebound. Yeah, for sure. yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and it gets to it, LeBron, and he kind of reaches in the first time, and then gets in LeBron's way on the second and, attempt back at the ball. And and I don't think they should have called the sixth foul on that, but it was a crazy thing to do. These, mm-hmm. Those are the kind of plays that get you called. Like, yeah. like we talk about how Nick Jokic commits like 47 frustration fouls a month like yeah. that, where he met his team misses and he kind of lazily swipes at the ball. Like cool. it was just a little reckless for like, cool. it's a play that someone with five fouls shouldn't be trying to make. Cause it's a pretty I, low percentage play. I think probably what happened was LeBron showed him up and he wanted to steal the ball from LeBron. Mm-hmm. And that's not, plain to win the game necessarily it's understandable for a competitor to be motivated by that it's easy for me to say literally i'm on my couch right now um that hey you know you shouldn't do that but we're all human beings and it seemed like he got reckless the game was not over i mean it was getting away from the warriors but it wasn't over and even though i don't think that the kenny mauer crew should have called that he was just risking it the entire game. And some of the fouls were cheap. Some of the fouls probably shouldn't have been called. But sometimes what refs do, and they would never admit it, but it is how it goes, they don't 
maybe hit you for the foul that you did, but if you're displaying enough recklessness in the aggregate, mm-hmm. they're just going to do it on principle. They're just yeah. going to go, you're, you're being crazy. What are you doing? At some level, they go, what are you doing running into the backcourt and trying to steal the ball from, from LeBron? I'm just fouling you. I'm just, I'm just fouling you out of this on the, on, on the principle of it. And so, you know, it, it was just a very strange Steph game in that way. And then, it, but on the other, on the other part of it, obviously the Warriors' best player in that game by far. And if things go a little different, maybe he pulls it out. Maybe he has enough shooting. Um, but a lot of it, again, came down. It just it came down to LeBron. I mean, LeBron was he was the rock. He was mm-hmm. the he was the guy that did not succumb. And I felt like some of the other Cavs when the lead when the lead was coming uh, was uh, whittling. Um, whittling, winnowing, I don't even know anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like they were kind of succumbing and LeBron was impervious. And that's why it's just, in my opinion, one of the one of the all-time great LeBron games. Yeah, well, so, one of the sneaky things there was it kind of the momentum shifted when Kyrie hurt his left foot in the six-minute yeah. mark of the third quarter where Kyrie was huge in this one early on. Like, he was hitting tons of those shots and and kind of the, the lead guy on offense. And something I, I flat-out forgot about was that after that point, LeBron scored 18 straight points for the Cavs. Like, he was just absolutely out of his mind. And I do remember the the play you were talking about, Ethan, it, where Curry had a layup that basically went in and came out. It would have made it yeah. a six-point game in the fourth quarter. After yeah. that, LeBron, next possession down, had an offensive rebound to extend it to 10. Barbosa hits a three. Then LeBron hits two straight shots, a tough jumper, and then Kyrie fed him for a layup to, to get it back to 11. But if that Steph layup goes down and it's a six-point game, it, this could have been a lot different because you, you just get a little bit tighter when it's a two-possession game. Yeah, Clay had a big moment, um, I think, closing the third quarter. I'm, I'm trying to remember these runs that were being made that I, th- I remember – the people in that building were nervous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were really nervous. And I've it's funny, I've been in the presence of that kind of negative fatalism of beleaguered fan bases in two series where the fan bases ultimately won out. You know, the the Cavs in this instance and most recently the Raptors. I mean, I can tell you that everybody in that building, um, in Toronto when Kevin Durant hit the first three pointer, was going like <laughs> I, 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 I shouldn't do this I, bad Canadian accent with Justin, but you're like, <laughs> oh, we're going to lose, boys. <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't been a championship in Toronto in uh, 40 years for a reason, boys. Back yeah. them in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fan, fans from those kind of tortured fan base is just like that. For lack of a better term, they just get tight buttholes. In those well, kind of remember the, the year before was the, the infamous moment on the Cavs PA where it was everybody stay calm. Yes. <laughs> We're all right. Let's rally. No, <laughs> man, I, 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 mean, I was is still persona non grata for telling everyone about that. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I remember being in the building for that. It was, Oh, you can, you can feel it, which is I think part of what makes this victory probably so sweet for you guys that mm-hmm. there is, this expectation that the hammer is going to come and it's never going to happen. And then ultimately it happens at the very end. And you know, you probably, you, you guys probably get a kick out of how the warriors gotten finally ultimately knocked off their pedestal as well. Um, and after seeming kind of impervious, um, mm-hmm. God, it's just such an epic series. And the other thing I got from rewatching this was, uh, 
a missing the energy, sort of the energy in the building and that feeling of, of uh, how big these games were um, and how much the fan bases hated each other. And you didn't even really sense that, frankly, in the last finals. The last finals felt, you know, potentially historically perfunctory. Yeah, you know, historically important, potentially. I think it, it could have been big for Steph, but, you know, he didn't, again, you know, these things, it might be unfair, right? It's a small sample size, but legacies are built on small sample sizes. Yeah. That's just how it goes. You know, I think that people are, in many ways, for just maybe the fun of trolling or whatever, sometimes unfair to, you know, to Steph Curry, but in order to be a top 10 player, he probably needed to come through in one of these. And that's, that's just it. That that's how it is. And LeBron would have been in a different spot historically, if he didn't come through in in this particular series, it would be, it'd be a much different conversation about him. And it would probably be unfair because it's small sample size, but legacies are determined by that. And that is just, that's just how it goes. And so I think with Steph, you know, if he would have come up huge and somehow willed the Warriors to win with how depleted they were in the Toronto series, uh, he could have vaulted himself into a new place. But other than that, it just didn't it didn't have just the blood in the air that the Cavs Warriors series had. And it seems like we've almost we lost something like the NBA just Ke- Kevin Durant ruined the NBA. Let's let's just call it what it is. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it, did he ruin the NBA or was he just following it's almost like the conversation about Trump, where is he the symptom or the disease? You mm-hmm. know, it's like in a way, and that's what something that I've, I, I wrote about. He, he almost epitomizes the modern ennui of the NBA where um, he's unhappy. He's outwardly unhappy and totally atomized and not kind of integrated into a team and a fan base um, in the way that's somewhat traditional and he's not the only one. Kyrie Irving of this game. <laughs> it's another another one of those guys. And I'm not quite sure. It, it's so funny that those two are together now. It's be a real happy locker room. Oh, my tell God. you what. Oh, geez. Um, it's, yeah. Can't wait uh, for whenever the NBA comes back. But for whatever reason, when you rewatch one of those old Warriors Thunders game, Thunder games from um, from that season or this series, it just seems like the NBA is not, it's not as epic as it just recently was. And perhaps it could recapture it. I don't know how, I don't know what's on the horizon that could do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I could see the Lakers and LeBron competing for a championship and it's big for LeBron's legacy, but it's just, it's just not going to be, it's not going to be this. Like it's just not this. And certainly not with the Clippers and Kawhi. I mean, who gives a shit? Who cares? Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know why they're together. I don't even know. I don't even know what they're doing out there. This is is like you're talking about a good buddy who's in a tough relationship right now. (laughs) It's just like it's just like know why they're together. I don't even understand it. I just Mm -hmm. what are they like? What what is what are the Clippers? What's the connective tissue that makes them exist? Yes, exactly. Like they they really awesome team. Like that's a really cool team that was put together that just seems to have no organic connection to the non-existent fan base. I, I, I've described the Clippers as the kind of team where you're playing uh, like an NBA 2K and you're yeah. like in your nine of your, <laughs> of your team. Yes. And you're like, wait, how did this come together? This doesn't yeah. feel like it would happen. <laughs> our conversation with Ethan Strauss will continue after a brief break from our sponsors. 
With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, betonline.ag, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All are open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. And if you're into props and entertaining betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website today and join for a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Two things that I, I think Carter and I have felt with a lot of these games is one within the game outside of the the well, I guess the first three, but even even the first two kind of had some moments where it was competitive through the game. But from four on, those games are a lot more competitive than people realize, and and really some some great basketball. The other thing is Steph overall. I, I think he was a lot better in this series than a lot of people give him credit for, and I kind of understand why some people reject the notion that oh well he's hurt like to me it is obvious because it's a little more subtle where he just has a little bit less explosiveness he's able to change directions or he's a little slower doing that he corners Um, slower that's my number one thing i noticed that like watching the series is him coming off of curls and literally like squaring back up to the basket that kind of stuff is just like eh, like imperceptibly almost Right. And, and in game and in game four and game seven in this game, like there's so many stretches where he had these massive answers to whatever the Cavs had and, and they were going kind of punch for punch. And, and game seven, I, I remember he made the, an athletic play where uh, JR tried the same lob he did in game six here and he, he broke that up and moments that if the Warriors would have won probably would have yeah. been looked at a little bit differently it's just a oh, couple little things where it made the difference but that's what we're in it for right sometimes i think people who are adjudicating it and talking about the unfairness of how the guy who loses is remembered they're almost missing the point mm-hmm. um we're, we're that's why we're in it we're in it because we're going to be really unfair to the loser we're right. going to be incredibly unfair to the loser it's like that simpsons episode with bart and lisa playing hockey <laughs> oh my god march Penalty shot with only four seconds left. It's your child versus mine. The winner will be showered with praise. The loser will be taunted and booed until my throat is sore. That's what we're in it for. We're in it because somebody is going to be elevated and somebody is going to be completely unfairly dragged through the mud. And it's going to be based on the thinnest of margins. And that's why if you're watching and you have a rooting interest, your heart is in your chest, heart mm-hmm. is in your throat, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Heart is normally in your chest. I can't confirm. Yeah, it's normally in your chest, yes. Um, (laughs) I've been reading up on this whole uh, pandemic. I know the biology. (laughs) Um, So that's that's part of what it is. And, you know, I I think in a way the unfairness for Steph was probably not getting the finals MVP in 2015 because – Looking back on it, it's just a weird vote. I mean, whoever is the leading scorer. If think, a Warrior was going to get it, it should have been Steph in that series. I agree. Yes. It's, it's the Hawks winning player of the month of final MVP award. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, and, and really, I think the finals MVP, I know Jerry West won it once with Blues. But it should always be the winning team because otherwise it's a weird ceremony of like ah oh, come we, on. That's what we're in it for. <laughs> right, yeah. Not to quote you in yeah. the same pod you just made sure. the point, but yeah, yeah we, I think that's fair too. I think he had some really obviously bad moments in the series and you know, he was hurt 
uh, I in the locker room, his knee looked like chopped meat. Uh, mm-hmm. I can I can say not a doctor, but it looked pretty pretty bad. But some guys can I guess do whatever it is is required or make whatever uh, got it out. Who knows? Whatever you want to say, we we're gonna judge these things based on whether you got it done, and whatever went into it is whatever went into it. I do want to take us back into the actual physical game because I don't think people remember this as strongly as I did rewatching. Mo Williams making a shot? <laughs> Absurdly. Absurd. But no, not where I was going. We'll get to our stray observations, which we try to reserve for near the end of the pod later. But so I specifically remember. So Cavs win game five. Draymond suspended. Uh, everyone's like, yeah, Dray was suspended. So what? Bogut gets hurt. Mm-hmm. And the Warriors announced that they're going to start the death lineup. Yep. And, like, I, I think it would be behoove us to have you just kind of speak to the mystique that was around that lineup at the time and how fucking crazy it was that it got ran off the floor in the first quarter of this game. You know, I am going to reject your leading question. I'm sorry to oh, say. damn it. I, I hate to do that to you. Do it. Take yeah, it. I think what you're, what you're revealing right now is that you were in Eastern Conference playoff world uh, before this series. And oh, that's disrespectful. You were I watch immersed, every single game. <laughs> you were immersed in the Cavs world because if you remember, the very same thing happened to the death lineup uh, emphatically in the Thunder series. And that was the shocker. That was the oh wow, like this lineup bleeds blood. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not just completely indomitable. It's and so I, you know, in a way, the fact that the death lineup was getting housed, I was just looking at it more globally as the Warriors were getting were, were getting housed. I didn't think like like that. as a like as a culture, like what do you mean by that? Well, just that they weren't they they looked bad overall. Like I I didn't think. I mean, maybe I wrote something for all I know. Like who knows? So so many years ago, maybe I wrote like now they're gonna do the death lineup. They're gonna win by forty. Like I I don't know. But in my memory, it wasn't like oh my god, I can't believe the death lineup's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, they just looked you know they looked a little bit ragged. And a lot of the reason the death lineup wasn't working was obviously Harrison Barnes, um, where. God, that was uncomfortable. The, the best, the best. I mean, there's so many great Mark Jackson moments in this uh, in this game, but there was one where Mark Jackson goes just completely deadpan. But they've got to get Harrison Barnes going. He's missed his last 14 shots. <laughs> they did. It's, it, it, but he it's right. It, it is literally, literally true. Like that was the stat. <laughs> Yeah, I would say uh, they need to get him going. Our fucking bench him. He's missed 14 <laughs> shots in a row. Oh, my God. Well, they did bench him. He only played 16 minutes in this game, which kind of seems crazy to me in hindsight. Um, well, it, it, Barbosa was playing better, and I came Yeah, away. Barbosa was an animal in this game. I, I had yeah. forgotten about that. Kicks it out. Open look, Barbosa. That's a three. Back out, Barbosa open. And Barbosa coming up huge off the bench. He's got 13 points. Yeah, Barbosa was was keeping them in it. And I, you know, I talked about Barnes's performance with Bogut at some point, and Bogut was saying that the Cavs switching screwed up the flow of the Warriors offense and that threw Barnes out of rhythm. And on the rewatch, I thought, you know, Bogut, that's an elaborate excuse on behalf of your friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just he kidding. just was missing wide open catch-and-shoot corner threes. And, and, and I hope Barnes doesn't listen to this because I, I do like him. And, I've you know, I, 
after people leave, you sometimes get a better dynamic with them. I think Barnes never liked how I wrote about him, and that's that's fair. Uh, so I hope this doesn't rekindle it. But yeah, he was he was terrible in this game. He was completely awful in, in the series, and I feel I feel badly for him because he's a good guy. But oh my god, it was it was rough to watch that. It was rough to rewatch that again. It was bad, and the idea that the the offensive flow was disrupted or whatever really i think you have to give the Cavs credit for leaving the guy that they needed to leave open but barnes needed to hit some of those shots why do you think it is that the warriors couldn't fucking score in this series because it it still i still don't understand it ethan they scored 11 points in the first quarter they didn't score their first points of this game until five minutes into the game they scored 13 points in the fourth quarter of game seven they scored 13 points in the fourth quarter of game five like this is the most unstoppable offense I'd ever seen. And at least against the Thunder, it appeared like, okay, there's at least four-plus defenders on the floor at all times, yep. depending on what you think of uh, Russ Westbrook. <laughs> and, like, this team, like, was never a juggernaut defensively, and somehow they threw them off more than any other. It, it, it's a confluence of factors. One was that if, look, the Cavs gave up some easy buckets after the first quarter, but in the first quarter, they are on their P's and Q's. Like they are not um, allowing any of those back cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just, they were covering everything. And so I think they were doing a really good job. The Cavs were, and they were playing a physical style of defense. And frankly, I think the Warriors might've gotten overly dependent on Steph. And then Steph was compromised and then they didn't totally know what to do. And, you know, a lot of these possessions, Steph at the peak of his powers can just, you know, Kyrie is guarding him, and Kyrie has his moments, but mm-hmm. he could get the space he needs to get a three-pointer off, which is, if you watch something like, I don't know, that uh, regular season game between the Thunder and the Warriors that season that people were recently rewatching and talking about on Twitter that ended in that long Steph Curry shot whenever the Warriors needed a bucket it was just Steph Curry pick and roll three and suddenly that's kind of off the table and he can't necessarily knife into the paint because he's not finishing well and you don't have other guys who can generate shots in a high pressure moment clay runs hot and cold you know he got loose at the end of the third quarter but he's not somebody you can really call his own number and then after that point I think the egalitarianism of uh, the Steve Kerr offense, um, which works well at a regular season setting when you're doing those back cuts, it doesn't work so well when players are paying attention. When suddenly J.R. Smith is pretty locked in versus how J.R. Smith is going to be in January. Right. Um, So I think it starts from the top. I think it had something to do with Steph uh, not being as good. And then you sort of saw how the Warriors were this beautiful machine that maybe like, I don't know, a BMW, if something is a little bit wrong with it, you're going into the shop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the analogy I'm making off the top of my head. Gotcha. They, I, I do agree with what you said earlier about it being a mistake taking Steph out because this was a game where they were really, after the Cavs had been allowed to beat up the Warriors a lot throughout the series and, and Steph in particular, they were not letting a lot of contact go here. Like Kevin Love picked yeah. up two fouls in the first minute. Uh, yep. Richard Jefferson got in foul trouble. A whole bunch of guys got in foul trouble in this game. And I almost wonder, I, well, I agree that... I felt like it was there was something going on there, right? It almost felt like there was something with Draymond being suspended for the game and then back that 
the Kenny Maurer crew was a little uptight. Like yeah. They were trying to control something. Yeah. And I think we should say that maybe part of the reason the Warriors offense and Steph weren't functioning as well is that the Cavs quite smartly were targeting him with LeBron on the pick and rolls and getting him into that foul trouble. Um, and so that and just actually making him tired. They were yes. beating the hell out of him on both ends They're, every possession. Yeah, no mercy, beating the hell out of him. And um, God, the set, the look of satisfaction on on Ty Lue's face when Steph got ejected. Did you guys Was, see? I that? Have, I have the note. I had completely forgotten about Lou smiling directly at Curry after he got ejected. Which, which, by the way, was uh, the first foul out of the season for Curry all all season yeah. um, since twenty thirteen. It was yeah, Lou Lou just smiling like we got. I, I wish I wish I had the the name. I someone in cast Twitter. I, I think it might have been Eric. I'm I'm not sure, but he tweeted after game six the, the picture of Ty smiling at Steph getting ejected and said, "If the Cavs win the series, I'm getting a painting of this over my fireplace." And he followed through on it, and, <laughs> and it is just absolutely glorious. And yeah, well, there I, was... I actually have a question uh, about yeah. about this because one of sure. my so we were kind of looking through this podcast and we were kind of identifying some like big topics, some big questions that we needed to hit. And so something I had forgotten about is so Steph gets ejected, throws a fit, throws the throws the mouth guard. I remember vigorously texting my brother and say he had a fan he might be suspended for game seven. <laughs> thank god i kept it off the timeline but it's fine so uh he he throws the mouth guard gets gets kicked off and then very shortly after draymond nearly gets it in, gets into it with the ref he yeah he throws his forearm into lebron's back like three straight times and then goes for a frustration foul and then starts and then freaks out when he gets called it was like almost like he was asking for a call it was a very strange thing where they just kind of seemed like they were falling apart. And that gets me was, that gets me to my questions. Yeah. Were the Warriors, especially this version of the Warriors as a team, resilient? Um, okay, that's a good question. Were they resilient? Because one could argue they are. They beat the they beat the Thunder down yes. one. Yeah, I would say yes. But sometimes you run into somebody who, for whatever reason, is resilient as well. Right, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you, you, you run into a very resilient team, and only what again? These are the small margins, and only one team can win. I thought they, I thought they were resilient, but I think I think the I Cavs think won the head game battle of this series. They, they, they did, but I also think that there is this dynamic, and I guess I wrote the coming back to earth where the shuttles breaking apart analogy, but I also think something else happened where. Um, you know, if you run a long race, you have some internal mechanism within you that has an understanding of how much you need to spend uh, until the very end, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. To, to, to get to that marathon. What happened with the Warriors, I think, and they were pushing themselves to just physical extremes in trying to get the 73 wins and then coming back from down 3-1 against the Thunder. And they had an internal sense, I believe, of how much they had within themselves and they were almost there, and it was almost like they had gotten to the end of the marathon, and there were 100 yards left um, after they win game. Was it? I'm trying to even remember. Was four. It game four. four. Yeah. yeah. They win. They they win game four. There are 100 yards left. You only need one more, and then it's like somebody announced, "Oh, there's two more miles." Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, because Draymond then, you know, punches LeBron in the nuts and then the suspension. 
And you, because that's when you really saw them fall apart physically. It was kind of interesting. And maybe this is woo-woo stuff and this isn't medically true. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like they had an amount of spend within them calibrated to um, getting to the finish line. And then Draymond's uh, bad decision at the end of game four made the finish line beyond the place they could actually get to. And the Cavs were the fresher team, uh, more athletic, stronger, just physically. And they could get there. And that's that's what we ended up seeing. Yeah, one, one of the things that after rewatching game four, to that point, LeBron hadn't had a great series. Like he, he put up numbers, but it, it was kind of weird. He was hesitating. He was bad in game four. Yeah, he, he was. And there were times where he would get switched onto Steph and he wouldn't really take it to the rim. He was kind of indecisive, kicking it out, had a lot of turnovers. And one thing that I had asked Marcus, because I almost think there's a chance that if the Warriors lost game four, they would have come out and won five and six. But getting down in that 3-1 hole, them getting so comfortable, Clay having his quote, I I guess LeBron just got his feelings hurt. And then going from that point to, okay, shit, now it's a series again. So kind of that thing you were speaking to of, oh, shit, there's two more miles here. I almost wonder if the Warriors would have won the series if they didn't win game four and if the Cavs' backs weren't against the wall in that way. But it it is interesting to kind of see. I, I think this was a really resilient team like they they responded so many times well resilient but also arrogant and ultimately and irreverent like they they uh they thought their best was better than anybody else because oftentimes it was and this is why i mean this series and the basketball is just so great is that it's you know for the side that loses it's almost like a greek tragedy where you've got the fatal flaw and with Steph, his ability to do things that other people never tried, that Brett Favre-esque looseness comes back to haunt him when he needs to play a more controlled game when he's somewhat physically compromised. Um, And the Warriors, I think, had a degree of arrogance. Mm -hmm. And I think Zach Lowe pointed out that they really just farted away uh, game three of the series. Like if if they'd come out and actually win game three, then the series is is done, but they didn't even show up. Yeah, and the Cavs romped, and so it, they 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 were a team that almost played sometimes to the point where they they almost wanted to put their hand over the flame just to feel the hotness of it, and it ultimately burned them. Um, in this instance, but it's not just one team screwing up. I mean, the I, I feel similarly about the Raptors beating the Warriors, where there were some extenuating circumstances and I don't think, I don't think really anybody blames the Warriors for losing the last series. No, maybe that that one, I think everyone kind of just raises their hands and whatever, but, but but the Raptors were still very resilient and that's almost a little bit lost now where they would just come in waves and they always had an answer when they needed one. That was Um, a sneaky veteran team for sure. Uh, Yes. Guys like Marcus all surge that had been through a lot of battles they did not get rattled and um so yeah uh i don't even know what tangent i'm on I, now but, i think two yeah. two things i would say re- resilient and arrogant and you could see some of the haughtiness come through when game six wasn't going the way that they wanted i think there's there's two injuries when you talk about the Cavs and warriors and, and the four years they had back back and forth going at it that don't get talked about because obviously people will talk about Kyrie and Love, they'll, they'll talk about Steph being hurt, Bogut going down, which was huge for this series. But Iggy's back in this yeah. series 
and Tristan Thompson being physically limited in 2017. I think those are two that don't get talked about enough. Um, how, how hurt was he? Like it's, it, you look at him in this game and he's just, his back is absolutely. He barely can, one point. Yeah. He barely he's can waddling. walk. He's waddling. And still, I thought he was, I mean, he, in a way, if only Steph could have had the mentality that Andre had, uh, because it seemed like he was still making good decisions and trying to play the right way. But even he, he hit some shots in this game, but at other points at the end of the series, just, he could not hit open shots and he was, he was all kinds of messed up and, and that mattered. But I, I, you know, I look at these, I try to look at these things a little bit probabilistic where I don't differentiate injuries from trying to get yourself the best shot. Like these are probabilistic outcomes. Mm -hmm. You take the shot, maybe it goes in, maybe it doesn't, but you're hoping that if you take better shots overall, fortune will favor you and how you manage your injuries, what trainers you hire, how many minutes you play your guys. These are all probabilistic. I don't look at it as, hey, we're just so unlucky every year a team gets hurt. If your team gets hurt every year, you're probably doing something wrong. And maybe that's a difference in perspective versus how a lot of people view these things. But I don't necessarily look at the series as, oh, the Warriors got so unlucky. Mm -hmm. I look at what happened as the sum total of a lot of different decisions, decisions that might've been understandable. Um, it was highly understandable to go for 73 wins um, and push themselves to the degree that they did it, but there was probably a cost to it. I know Kerr didn't want to do it. He was against it the whole time. Hmm. He was against it. I think for, for a reason, I think ultimately he was right, but if a, a few plays go a few different ways, then, um, it's this historically remembered season and it's everything Draymond, the guys who wanted it. Uh, it, it would have been that, yeah. but they were risking a lot, but they had won so much and they had won so much so early and they hadn't really had any playoff heartbreak. You know, the series they lost were series. Everybody expected them to lose up until that point. Um, so they had that arrogance versus Steve Kerr where he had had a long enough career he was worried about losing. He was worried about what could contribute to a loss. And I think that's why he was more conservative about it. And that's why even though he, he had to let them go for it because it's what they wanted, mm -hmm. I think that's why he was against it. And you don't... And, and I think the greatest argument for it coming back to haunt them from a health perspective wasn't just Andre. It was the way Steph got hurt initially. If you remember... Yeah, um, and I know you were in Eastern Conference world, so yeah, <laughs> who knows? But they're playing the Houston Rockets. But sweat, yeah, Monte Hunas. No, no, no. Before that, oh, okay. Oh, that was because that one. You have to remember that Steph was come had was had come back. You know, at that point, um, that he had missed games already in the playoffs. I think it was game one. He looked completely dominant. In a way that, frankly, I don't think we've seen him look again. I mean, I know he's had a game or two where he hits 13 threes, but just that total command of that season where he is the fulcrum of everything um, looked incredible in that first half against the Rockets. And then he just turned on a possession and suddenly something was wrong with his foot. Nothing happened. Like, it was non-contact. He didn't slip or fall on anything. To me, when stuff like that is happening, it generally shows that maybe the body's been pushed too far. 
that when you're just kind of just in the general course of doing nothing, suffering an injury and you're missing playoff games, that probably shows that they, they push themselves a little too far, but Hey, arrogance is also the fuel of the whole thing. You know, you wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to be what they were without that. Right. Ultimately, they you mentioned this about that. Draymond uh, in yeah. terms of, you know, his, uh, his foibles among uh, yeah. dick punching and kicking and technicals and suspensions. Like it's the yin to the yang. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, and we had you know, that with yeah, J.R. Tra- Smith. Like, yeah, that, that confidence like tra- is a blessing and a curse. And I'm sure Marcus would say that where, you know, what was Draymond thinking hitting LeBron in the nuts in a game that the Warriors had won? They'd effectively wrapped up the series. But if Draymond isn't reacting when LeBron is walking over him with this feeling, this, this chip on his shoulder that Draymond has, if nobody's going to punk me ever, I mean, is he who he is? Obviously, you want him to be able to temper who he is in that situation, but mm-hmm. he might not get there without that kind of just insane uh, burning fire. And this was, I think that it was really such a veteran savvy series for LeBron where he was, play, he played all the head games. Uh, he, he played them well. Mm-hmm. He got, he got, he got, uh, he got Draymond suspended and he got Steph ejected. I mean, that's, that, that's what he did. That's what happened. <laughs> one, one thing we actually brought up in, in that series was the decision to suspend Draymond. I remember at the time, I just I had no real hope for it. I was like, well, he didn't get suspended when he kicked Steven Adams. They're not going to do it here. Uh, it's 3-1. This series is over. I, I was completely defeated in that moment. But And, and I, I think that was a, an attitude a lot of Cavs Twitter had at that point. But the rest of NBA Twitter, uh, the worldwide wobs and all that. It's, it's going in, analyzing it like the Zapruder film. And just, I, I wonder if the Twitter pressure, because this is something we've seen with Adam Silver, is what drove that decision to suspend him more so oh, than LeBron advocating if, if, for if, it. If this, dude, if this happened in the 90s, nobody would have even known about it. Right. <laughs> like nobody would have it was a twitter seen. creation which is so fascinating to look back on it, especially when we look at what the league's like now yeah and i don't know if that's for the better necessarily and it's it's a, it's a tough one because i'm generally anti-suspending necessary players i i grew up rooting for the knicks and uh when the the knicks were suspended for coming off the bench that was something that really made me angry mm-hmm. and I like those Suns teams. I was going like to say, yeah, happened. as a Canadian, the the Steve Nash Suns, I'm I'm pretty sure they would have smacked yeah. the Cavs in the finals if they got yeah. there, and that would have happened if it wasn't for that suspension. Yeah, so I I don't like that, but then the other side of that is, uh, well, you have to have some rules, otherwise you got guys just punching dicks left and right. So he, yeah, he he uh, burnt his last chance. Was <laughs> what I think it ultimately came down to. One thing I do well, want yeah, to, if he. If he I, I don't think it if, if not for the Ibaka thing. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, no, not the Ibaka thing. Steven, uh, Steven Adams, Adams, yeah, yeah. If not for the Steven Adams thing, which I it, it's a funny thing. I don't think that he meant to kick Steven Adams in the nuts. I don't think he's coordinated enough to do that in the course of general play. Mm-hmm. But it was everything else with him, right? It wasn't just that. It wasn't just he. He wasn't a guy where like if Sean Livingston did that to Steven Adams, I don't think people are. Uh, saying that this is part of a pattern. The problem was the constant antagonism. And um, I think it does speak to the arrogance uh, 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 where they're just haranguing the refs all the time. And I, I say they because it eventually became a they thing. Right. With him 
KD, and even Steph getting in on it. And but he just the relentless, the relentless sort of uh, anger and antagonism. Ultimately, like you said, he burned his last. He, he, he used this. I was a last straw, whatever the metaphor we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And it all, it ultimately wasn't even about the incident itself. It was everything else. And so Draymond would get this chip on his shoulder that there was a target sign on him. I think he said that before. Um, but there, you have to ask the question, well, why you then? I mean, I don't think it's because, uh, you were randomly selected for this. I think it has something to do with what with what you were doing. Right. And, and this series, so much of it is about composure. I think like looking back on it now, like it, it's funny because at, at this point, this version of the Warriors, I look back and I'm, I'm kind of affectionate with them. Like I, I really enjoy the personalities and in the games where they are playing well, just how on a string they are, how attentive they are defensively. One thing I, I wonder though, and I'd love for you to speak to this. Steve, I, one of the notes in rewatching this, I put up Steve Kerr's giving off Dwayne Casey vibes on every call. There, there were two times that Steph fouled intentionally on offensive rebounds. One was Tristan, which this was Tristan's masterpiece. This is why his jersey's probably going in the rafters this game. And then another time on Kevin Love. But I always wonder if a coach losing composure is contagious amongst the players. Like, Coaches are going to try to have some gamesmanship with the referees, but when you're really incredulous on every single call, I, I almost wonder if that is something that can impact the team. Because that that was certainly the case with the Raptors. Like the Raptors I, always I think, would lose. It. I think it's a big Mike D'Antoni problem. I actually talked about it. I hopefully I'm not giving too much away, but I, I one of these uh, I it was I think Western Conference Finals. I was sitting I was sitting next to Mike, Mike Wilbon and I, I don't know him well, but started talking about the game and we were just observing that Mike D'Antoni was just losing his shit on every call. And it's so unlike his demeanor generally in the regular season. And Wilbon was saying, yeah, refs hate that. You know, I play golf with some of these guys and they hate it when these coaches just completely changed modes from how they were in the regular season. And suddenly it just comes off as inauthentic and they do, they probably punish these guys for it. And that's not to say that I necessarily felt the same way about if Kerr was contesting too many calls. If anything, I kind of felt, I came away feeling the other way where Kerr almost had a fatalism about it. You know, you, we, we mentioned how Ty Lu looked when Steph got ejected. The expression on Kerr's face is also interesting because mm-hmm. he's also grinning. He's grinning kind of like, oh, oh well. shucks. Yeah, ah, shucks. You know, he's not losing it. And I think it's because coaches at some level, I don't want to make it like, I don't want to get aggregated like I'm saying Steve Kerr hates Steph Curry. But uh, coaches at some level hate their players. They, <laughs> there's part of them. There's resentfulness. They resent their players. They love their players too. You know, it's a relationship, but they also hate their players because their players do all this dumb shit that they're telling them over and over again not to do. Steve Kerr hates that Steph keeps fouling and keeps reaching in. And even if he was yelling about these calls and even if he was arguing with the refs, I think in that particular moment, there was probably a sense of, well, what did you think was going to happen? You know, what'd you think? What'd you think? I told you not to do the thing. You kept doing the thing. Okay, well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see game seven. And so I think maybe Kerr even had 
perhaps too much of that attitude. I thought he took the loss in such a in such a calm way. And in some ways, it's a loss that hurts his legacy, the loss of the series, the Azili thing people talk about. But given all the health issues that he was he went through and the different perspective, I think at, at some level, him and maybe some of the other coaches had a feeling of we kept telling these guys not to do this dumb shit and they did the dumb shit. What did they think was going to happen? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's probably time to move into some stray observations about this game because I have one about Kerr that I I think goes the other way, which I think is hilarious because we were kind of talking about, you were mentioning Kerr really didn't want to go for 73 and Kerr does have this kind of conservative mentality despite having this really progressive team. And nothing spoke to that more than the uh, sideline hits. Sager had uh, the Warriors, I believe. Doris had the Cavs. Uh, forgive me if I've got it mixed. But whoever it was was like, they were asking Kerr what went wrong in the first half. And he, and he referenced Steph taking that super deep three in the second quarter. I'm like, <laughs> you think Steph was the problem here? <laughs> Steph was the only reason they were good. So it's like that double-edged sword yeah. of Kerr. Like, the Warriors Kerr might have won can't this. turn that off. No. The, the Warriors might have won this game if Steph just took like 10 contested more threes as opposed to every shot Harrison Barnes took. Like... <laughs> Like, it's just such a great straight. Justin, do you have, do you have any, uh, any stray observations that you want to call out? I got more, but we can ping pong a little bit. Yeah, and so same for you, Ethan. One, uh, again, I, I think this was the, the Tristan Thompson game. Um, his ability to switch on to Steph, on to Harrison Barnes, and, and still be the, the force on, on the boards was massive. One thing I completely forgot about, though, was Dante Jones to close the half. Dante Jones inside, layup is good! Dante Jones, who's hardly played in the finals, only 14 minutes through the first five games. What a big bucket. Yeah, he gets an and one and makes it a 14-point game. And then Draymond's reaching over his back, sending him to the line, and extends it to 16 points. Just him, Dante Jones, and Mo Williams making first-half contributions in this game is, is hysterical to me. Dante oh Dante Jones's shoulders were what jumped out to me. That was on my note. <laughs> that guy had the physique of a man who hadn't been playing basketball most of the year, <laughs> but instead had been lifting. <laughs> oh man, I can't get over the Mo Williams sighting because I had totally erased that from my brain. I'm sure in Cavs Twitter and Cavs world, there's more of an appreciation. No, nope, nope, nope. forgot. Everyone to. forgets. I, <laughs> people forget that Delhi was benched basically for the end of the series. Like six, yeah, this six was and seven. the game Delhi was benched in. Yeah, and, and Mo Williams <laughs> played minutes in game seven as well and I, I, didn't play. It's, it's so bad I, i'm gonna admit that when i when when i saw him in and when i saw him god would, it, would he have an and one i'm trying to even remember he had, a, he had a nice floater yeah he had a floater and then another bucket right after james williams holding his balance the floater yeah when i saw i literally looked it up on basketball reference to make absolutely sure it was the same mo williams <laughs> I, I literally <laughs> i literally looked it up i was like oh, yeah, shit. So he, <laughs> that he was mo starting williams. at the beginning of the season people forget star mo williams. <laughs> people forget Kyrie missed the first couple months of the season recovering from the knee surgery from the finals and they had signed mo most started like like the first two months of the year and then was awful pretty much the whole time got cut from the rotation from basically January through June. And then all of a sudden, Delhi playing worse and worse every game. We see Mo excised in game yeah. six and gave them okay minutes. Did you guys remember that the game starts off with a J.R. Smith air ball? <laughs> oh, it, a bad <laughs> shot. A deep, bad shot. That was one of the, But that actually is a good stray observation for me, is that I always felt like how the Cavs were running offensively 
one of the best barometers for that was actually J.R. Smith three-point attempts. He got 10 threes off in this game. Ooh. Had 14 points overall. So not like an extraordinarily efficient game, but I just felt like when they were able to find him and he was getting enough space, because like that was the thing, like people were just like glued to him. Uh, he was definitely the best shooter on the team and, and people treated him that way. So, and the Cavs didn't like run an extraordinary amount of offense. It's not like they ever ran plays for JR. Like it was mostly high pick and roll spaced out. So like if the pick and roll was working and teams were collapsing down, JR got a lot of threes off and the Cavs scored a lot. When defenses were playing well and throwing off what the Cavs did, he would get like maybe three or four threes off and their offense would seem to do worse. So it felt like one of those games where JR got a lot of good looks off. Like, yeah, he took a couple bad ones, which he always is. But the difference between three shot attempts for JR and 10 from three is hugely different. There was something Howard Beck said years ago, I think it was right when the trade was made, uh, that having seen Shumpert and J.R. Smith and the Knicks, whatever they give you, they will also take away an equal amount. Whatever they put on the table, they will take off the table an equal amount. And I remember watching this game, I thought to myself, you know, I think that might be true of Shumpert, but I don't feel that way about J.R. Smith. I, I think J.R. ultimately, overall, better player, better career, more devastating, inspires fear when he shoots the ball, at least. This is subjective, mm-hmm. Bill Simmons-y stuff, but whatever. Versus Shumpert, where I'm just watching him get torched by Steph, and I'm thinking to myself, how good was Shumpert really? Like, that that was a stray thought in my head. Mm-hmm. How good, or was he, or did he just... The only stretch that Shump, Shump had a couple good times in New York, he was very good in the 2015 finals. But JR, I think one, people, one thing people forget about the 2015 finals was in game one, he fell down and busted his shooting hand. And uh, he found out later that summer they, they did an x-ray and he had a bone that had healed that I guess had broken in, in that game. But he was just completely ineffective after being great for them throughout the playoffs. And I, I think overall, JR is beloved in Cleveland. Like I think yeah. non-Cavs fans will bring up 2018 more than any of us will because uh, a lot of yeah. this game is kind of what we remember. And uh, watching this game again, I think they should let they, they, they should let that go. By the way, Cavs aren't winning that final. No, like, that, that's just, my they, thing. It's like you know what? I'm whatever. It, even it, there's no guarantee he hits that shot, and if he does, there's still time on the clock for the Warriors to attempt to score yeah. on the worst offense and hit or worst defense in history to that point. No, it's it's not something I dwell on. But one thing I do remember, uh, or uh, one thing from rewatching this game, I came to the conclusion that when Kyrie outlets to JR, JR throws it back uh, to LeBron for the dunk. I think that was my happiest moment as a Cavs fan because there's yeah. the release and the relief that comes from winning. That's a, it's it's it, that that's it's such an incredible alley oop, like it's just visually visually beautiful. And that was the Dreams moment that gave me it. hope. That that was yeah. the moment that gave hope. It's like okay, shit, they're actually going to win this game. That's that's when I completely lost the the fear and the tension that I had had at that point in the series. And you, and game six, I mean, that was just such a war of attrition. Like it, it was by the end of it, I was relieved, but it wasn't the just pure joy in that moment from that JR lock. Do you remember when you were most scared in this game or most negatively Cavs fan fatalistic where you thought the walls were coming in or were, when they got it down moment? to seven in the third quarter? 
Yeah. I, my heart was racing again. And LeBron just closed the door. It was tough for me to bounce back after Kyrie hurt his foot. Yeah. It, Kyrie hurting his foot is very similar to when LeBron hurt his hand in game seven, where I'm like, shit, this is, this is the Cleveland moment. This is Kyrie's not going to be able to get it done. And I mean, he was a little bit limited in game seven. He, he didn't hit a three until the second half. And I probably, it's hard to know where my mind was at that time. But I think when Clay was going off at the end of the third, if you would ask me, I probably would have said, yeah, the Warriors are going to win. Mm-hmm. Like I probably would have, you know, just, having seen clay come online and when that uh, step layup was almost in the rim i i think that was i was more fearful because that was a step led run because there was a time where clay brought it back to nine i think towards the end mm. of the third with Steph yeah. on the bench and, and he was fantastic at that point big game clay but when curry was going on that run and that layup could have went down to cut it to six that that i was pretty fearful because i was like they're just not getting anything out of Kyrie for the last few minutes just uh, again the lebron technician technician and pick and roll um and just kept them at bay just really kept them at bay and maybe not single-handedly but it certainly it certainly felt that way and i you know that's my main that was my main memory of that game and being in the building and god it made me nostalgic maybe i don't have any more um stray observations uh just i don't you know, I'm not a beat writer anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in the trenches like that. I do go to games of that magnitude or near it, or as we were discussing, there aren't games of that magnitude right, right now. Um, and maybe not for a while, not just because of coronavirus. Um, but yeah, it just sort of took me back to a time and place. And uh, Where there was a thin margin like, for error. And <laughs> I, I think that was the main thing yeah. that, that was lost <laughs> in the KD era. And I, yeah. I really do wish that we, we got a couple more years of the well, well, a and, thin and healthy. For air, a thin margin for air that wasn't only thin due to boredom and unhappiness. Right. 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 Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. yeah, that was nice. That's that kind of been my takeaway watching these games is because I – I'll admit I was a little fearful and that watching back these games wouldn't be as good as I remembered. Um, They're they're great. And and that I was worried that the blowouts would feel blowoutier when I already knew the results. But I think what I've found is that this might just be a basketball truism that, you know, may or may not actually be accurate, but I just felt like the talent level was so high that blowouts almost were more inevitable because either team operating at peak of their powers yeah. Was unbeatable. Yeah. <laughs> and like it led to these these plays where like both this game and game four were close. Like the like the Warriors were could have won this game with relative ease and they didn't. We just can't we just can't recreate just the alchemy of this series and how much these fan bases hated each other, at least as represented by Twitter right, yeah. people. Um and it's kind of nice to look back on it because I feel like a lot of that is cooled down in retrospect. And um, I certainly feel like I have a different relationship with Cavs Twitter than I did at that time. Um, you do. One of your columns got posted when you were criticizing the NBA in our, uh, in our little podcast discord. And a couple of people were like, oh, yeah, Ethan's great. And I'm like, you would not have said that in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, because I was talking up like the Warriors are great and Steph's incredible and Steph is more popular than LeBron. And, you know, but that was part of the whole alchemy of this thing where Steph is the adorable little, you know, Steph Curry, even though he's not that little, 
uh, was really sort of seizing LeBron's spot as the face of the league. And, and Under Armour was relevant. And that was a subplot in this whole thing that we didn't even bring up, that this is, I think, you know, the whole Chef Curry thing had happened and everybody was mocking his shoes. I, I wrote, hey, uh, I got to plug the book. I, I wrote about all this sort of the rise and fall of Under Armour in the book. Um, but, you know, he was on the upswing. And so I think there was a deep level of resentment LeBron had towards staff that is fairly uh, palpable. Um, and the fan bases resented each other. And there was hard scrabble Cleveland, blue collar Cleveland versus the, you know, fancy Bay area or however we stereotype mm-hmm. these things. Right. I mean, there's, there's always, there's, there's always a lot of reduction to it. Right. That's like, the fun part. Like sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, that's the fun part. You know, we act like Shaker Heights doesn't exist or like uh, East Oakland doesn't exist. You know, we just reduce these um, the these areas down to a stereotype and, you know, like the Duke-UNC um, dynamic. And so... That's no Chapel Hill that. somewhere in the ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, st- I know nothing it's, about it. It's a it. beautiful, I, I beautiful campus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the, that's the whole, like, public yeah, school yeah, versus yeah. private school thing. You know, it, it becomes a proxy in that world, I think, for liberal versus conservative. I so, think this series was kind of that in a lot of ways. I think people tried to turn it into that, you know? I think I think people you see people trying to attach a lot onto the thing. Yeah, the terms used to describe this series often were in that vein, whether they were accurate or not. And I would argue they mostly weren't. Yeah, but it's, you know, I think somehow politics also gets gets folded in, but it's not folded in all too neatly because, okay, so Ohio is going to, you know, Ohio votes Republican now, uh, but Cleveland doesn't. So, you know, what are we... You know, what are we exactly mm-hmm. doing? I, I, I'm not sure. But yeah, people try to attach all this this cultural stuff on top of it. And I'm probably not even listing everything that, that goes into it. But there just isn't any basketball happening. There's no basketball happening. <laughs> yeah, there's no basketball happening <laughs> but, right now. But, if I have a problem with the NBA right now, is that there's just not yeah, enough games. Yeah, but there, there's no basketball uh, before that that was happening on the level that we would attach that amount of meaning, like we used to hear, like the no. Knicks versus the Pacers, Hicks versus Knicks. And, um, you know, back in the day, uh, you had uh, the Celtics, white America's team versus the Lakers, black America's right. team, you know, like these sorts of, it's bigger than basketball. It's got this cultural aspect that's kind of absurd and maybe not even all that healthy, but, God damn yep. it. It's so, it's so fun and it's so intense. Yeah, well, sports isn't supposed to be healthy. Like, <laughs> it's so weird that we're nostalgic about something just four years ago. Like, this feels like 40 years ago. It really does. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, for me, I mean, personally, just it felt like a different time in my life. And I, I feel like a much different person than I was back then. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm deceiving myself but i also cared a lot more about a lot of those stupid arguments on twitter about legacy i don't, i've completely checked out I'm, I'm aware of it i observe it but i don't see myself as somebody in the trenches shaping it right like i'll say that steph had a chance to really up his legacy that he missed out on against the raptors but i'm not if you notice, I'm not on Twitter trying to make my case for... Well, we've learned that there's not a lot of good faith arguments out there. No one's really no. having those discussions. And um... No. And I, I just... I, I have more of an attitude of whatever will be, will be. 
Um, maybe it's my fault if uh, the Warriors get too much scored because I'm not. You no, know, it's Sam and Andy. Generally. It's Sam and Andy. <laughs> it's, it's Sam and Andy. Yeah, it's always so, Sam and Andy. It's probably their fault. It's probably mostly their fault. But yeah, I just you know it's it's tiresome. It's just a terrible. It's a more awful place I think than it was to have those sorts of conversations. And but uh, yeah, back then I was sort of just in the. We were wide-eyed and we were stupid. wide-eyed and stupid. It was it was so it it doesn't feel like four years ago. It feels like yeah. I mean it feels like forever ago. We we um, can all agree that the rating decline happened the bat, because the Cavs yeah. are no longer contenders. So hope hopefully that turns around soon. <laughs> I mean, you you joke, but I think that's an aspect of it. I think that what we're learning in retrospect is that fans, writ large, not just locally prefer when a player attaches to their drafted team and succeeds with that team. And is that fair to the player? No. I mean, the draft is a crazy system where you're just sort of sent off to someplace not of Mm -hmm. your choosing. I mean, that's not entirely, that's not entirely fair, but that's just what people are into. And maybe it's a lie that these players happen to just fall in love with the random town they're, they're sent to. In the case of LeBron, it had this added component of being from the general area, but you know, the, 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 the fans seem to be more into it versus. Well, you the, and uh, you and Sam talked about it, right? It's the noble lie that I just don't think people are able to, to buy into with all this constant movement. Yeah. It's, it's the noble lie that has kind of gone away. And um, not only has that gone away, but we just see transparently how unhappy these guys are. That's informing our reception of the product because at a certain level, we're not just rooting for the teams. A lot of people are almost renting a parcel of the self-esteem of the athlete and hoping that they uh, get everlasting glory. But if they get the glory and you can see that they're miserable and completely insecure and completely uncool because you're in real time viewing their social media Mm -hmm. habits. I I don't know who I could possibly be referring to right now. (laughs) Um, That destroys the whole thing. No, I completely (laughs) agree. (laughs) If, if, If you're miserable, then why am I, you know, why, why am I even hoping you do well? You're not going to be happy. No, I kind of hope that this forced break that we have, maybe it's going to detox us a little bit and and we'll be a little more in the moment. And uh, the uh, inevitable hit to the cap is probably going to restrict some, some movement as well. So I do think absence makes the heart grow fonder and, for as unhappy as the Warriors eventually became, and I wish this it was in my book, but it's not. It was a conversation that somebody, I mean, this sounds name droppy, but whatever, but somebody was having a conversation with Igadala about my book and about the idea that winning doesn't make you happy. And he was asked if that was true because that's sort of the thesis of the book. And Andre said, yeah, that is true, but you miss it afterwards. Mm-hmm. You miss it when it's gone. And I feel a little similarly about the NBA in general right now where, yeah, the NBA product I think has atrophied in a way and it isn't what it was. And there are a lot of components to that and we could do a whole other podcast and probably many podcasts on that topic, but not having it anymore. I think when it comes back, we're going to be quite excited about that just to have it back in our lives. And that might revive, that might revive it. That just might be enough to revive it and hopefully smack it out of the doldrums that I think it's entered with uh, players seeming outwardly kind of miserable and uh, mercenary and the league uh, sort of 
I don't the, the way the product is. Uh, I mean, that's something that hasn't gone away. The ESPN production, Jesus Christ, it just needs to get better. Mm-hmm. Just make the thing seem like a cooler thing. Yeah, make it seem better. Seem seem like you like it, and then maybe the the viewers will as well. <laughs> but Ethan, we we really do, we really do appreciate you coming on and helping us reminisce about better times. Uh, for all our yeah. listeners out there, make sure that you're checking out the Victory Machine. Do you have anything else that you'd like to uh, to plug in this these dry times? Yeah, my stuff at The Athletic, Podcast House of Strauss, pre-order the Victory Machine. I, I very much appreciate that. And look, guys, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm the type of guy I prefer when people tell me about, you know, tell me about how they feel about me when I'm alive. So I just want to <laughs> say that. <laughs> Remember oh, that, people. Yeah. <laughs> well, we love you, Ethan. Yeah, yeah, we love you. Oh, Let's let shower you with praise. Big group hug. All right. A big, big thanks to Ethan for coming on the podcast. Remember, to all our listeners, if you want to shower us with love, the best way to do so is by leaving a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, and resubscribe, and help cook those books. And if you want to be part of our Discord chat that Carter alluded to earlier in the podcast, you can send a screenshot of that review to chasedownpod at gmail.com. Big thanks to Ethan. Thanks to Carter. Thanks to all our listeners. And until next time, go Cavs.